Hello, this is Leslie Gartha Tenzer, and this is Legal Tenzer, casual conversations on noteworthy legal topics. It's the holidays, a time of giving, and what better time to discuss not-profit law? And my colleague, John Brown, is here to explain it all. It's also exam time, and I'm wishing you all the best as you approach your exams. As you sit down for each exam, take your time, remind yourself how hard you studied, and remember to apply law to fact. Good wishes to all of you. This is our last episode of the semester, and we look forward to rejoining you again in January. And here is my discussion with Professor John Brown about nonprofit law. All right. Well, thanks so much. It's so nice to talk to you. Actually, today is Wednesday, and yesterday was Giving Tuesday, and Giving Tuesday is known to give to nonprofits, right? There are all different kinds of nonprofits. I guess some don't need necessarily money. Maybe they do because they don't have a profit. Um, but I thought it would be a good time to talk about what a nonprofit is, what nonprofit law is, and what's going on in the world of nonprofit, and maybe even how it kind of collides with AI and that kind of a thing. So first, let's begin with just tell me, what is a nonprofit? Sure. So that's an important topic to cover before we get into what nonprofit law is. Uh, and maybe it's a little more complicated answer than people might think. One misconception people sometimes have is that a nonprofit must be an organization that doesn't make profit. And that's not really true because a lot of nonprofit organizations do make profit in the sense that they generate revenue. Uh, think about nonprofit universities, collect tuition, uh, hospitals getting money from insurance, and they can have more revenue than they have expenses. And in that sense, they're generating profit. Really, the question is, what do they do with that profit? And so nonprofit organizations are organizations that have a kind of structural feature that they cannot have uh, their profit flow to anyone with control over the organization. And another way of saying that is they can't have owners. So they're distinguished between, they're, they're private organizations, but they're distinguished from another kind of private organization, a business, and that a business has owners and that a business generates profits for the benefit of its owners. So that covers a lot of different types of organizations. Um, one way of looking at it is think about the different sectors in our country. There's the public sector, governmental, you know, federal, state, and local, and there's a private sector. And I think people usually first think about businesses in the private sector. Nonprofits are sometimes called a third sector. It's, it's the other side of the private sector. It's private organizations that are that are not businesses and that have that common feature of what's sometimes called the non-distribution constraint. Uh, you can't have owners that, that get the benefit of profits. So that covers a lot of organizations. That covers churches and religious organizations, covers uh, private universities, schools, and other educational organizations that are not schools, covers what we think of as charitable organizations like Red Cross, the Salvation Army, covers arts organizations, museums. And that's just what we kind of characterize as public benefit uh, nonprofit organizations, the ones that usually get 501c3 tax exemption, which, which I can get into. And there's other organizations that are more for the benefit of members, and they're nonprofits as well. That could include social clubs, uh, country clubs, fraternities, labor unions, business league, trade associations, and a whole bunch of other things. So it's really a, a pretty diverse category. It's funny because that I was going to ask you, I, it's a little bit of an elitist thought, but, you know, we think of not-for-profits as, you know, every town USA or the Red Cross, as you said, and I'm thinking about a country club. And I guess that counts as a not-for-profit not too. But that's interesting. I hadn't thought about that. What about, this may be a little off topic. I don't know, because I don't know that much about this, but what about NGOs, non-governmental organizations? Yeah, that's really another way of saying nonprofit. Um, often people use that in the context of internationally, because NGOs can take different forms in different places. But basically, that's another way of saying nonprofit. And in, in, in this country, we refer to NGOs generally as nonprofits, and most of those are nonprofit corporations. 
So, and you know, when you said, and I, I know this is probably clear, but I just want to parse it out a little bit more. When you say that they owners can't get money from them, right? That would be clearly like a PepsiCo or even, you know, a mom and pop dry cleaner. But, you know, you talk about a university and I think about our university and every university has a president, right? So, but they're in charge, but they're not the owner. So what's the difference? Like what constitutes someone becoming an owner versus just running a company? Yeah, that's a great question. So, yeah, most nonprofits, there are small nonprofits that are purely run by volunteers and no one's making any money in that sense. But when you think about, you know, again, the organizations that comprise the nonprofit sector, we're talking you know, big hospitals and universities, obviously they need to pay people money. And that includes all staff as well as the executive officers. So that at first seems like kind of contradiction. The idea is that they can pay people salaries as and look at that as an expense of the organization rather than as profits at the end of the day after all expenses are paid. But that's where the rubber hits the road. What When is a salary an expense versus when does it look like actually what's really going on is you're distributing profits to someone with control over the, the organization. So there are rules around that. There's, there's rules governed by state law uh, and by federal tax law about setting compensation, about the process for how compensation is improved, what a reasonable salary can be. And that, that's there, there's often controversy around that when you, you know, particularly when you think of big universities where there's very highly paid uh, presidents and sometimes very highly paid uh, coaches. Of, I was going to say, like, what about teams? a coach yeah. who gets it? Gets yeah. like, what about this? Is exactly, what I was going to ask you. Yeah. What about a coach that gets a bonus for winning a uh, bowl game? Like that to me would not be someone that would should qualify for not for profit if they have that much discretionary funding allocation. I don't know. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. And, and that, that's uh, an area where there's a lot of controversy. They're actually fairly recently, there, there's a change that was introduced. There's an excise tax that mm -hmm. applies for salaries over a million dollars. And so that would apply, you know, in cases of very highly compensated coaches. And, but it's, it's you know, people still, the organizations still do it and there's still very, very high salaries. They have to be approved in a certain way. And the idea is, it's supposed to be approved by the board of an organization on the basis of, is it in the best interest of the organization? And if it's approved following the right process, it's, it's pretty hard to overcome that uh, default rule that you, you trust the judgment of the board if they figure out, well, actually, you know, we, we want to pursue our, our mission of education. And mm -hmm. we've decided that it's actually in the best interest to have the best possible coach because that will improve our athletics program. Uh, and people could question that for sure. So that, that's, that's a pretty controversial area. That's all right. So let's get back to the kind of nonprofits. Is there a difference between saying not-for-profit and nonprofit? It's the same thing, right? Same thing. Yeah. In New York, okay. it's called not-for-profit corporation, but really same thing. Okay. So let's get back kind of to the traditional nonprofits. What is the biggest challenge as a lawyer to working with a nonprofit? Hmm. Great question. Well, I think challenge and also what makes it an interesting area of law, there are, there are really two main areas of the law. There, there's state nonprofit corporation law, and it's a kind of corporate law that in many ways is similar and overlaps with you know, the law applicable to business corporations, but it's different in a lot of ways as well. And then there is federal law. Uh, it's the law of federal tax exemption. And I think what makes it diff difficult, uh, for one thing, both those apply to a lot of different things a nonprofit does. And particularly the, the federal rules around tax exemption are pretty rigorous. It's, it's usually kind of the limiting factor when you're looking at nonprofit legal issues with what an organization can or can't do or programming they want to do, just generally how they, how they interact with stakeholders. And there are a lot of rules in, under the, the federal tax code. And there's a lot of room for interpretation and a lot of you know, gray areas. Uh, at, at first blush, it would seem 
like, oh, it must be clear what kind of organizations qualify to be uh, exempt as a 501c3 tax-exempt organization. And so nonprofits usually are tax-exempt under 501c, Section Mm -hmm. 501c of the Internal Revenue Code. 501c3 is the area that most are familiar with. It's the most common form of tax exemption, but there are other areas as well. But to be exempt under Section 501c3, it applies to certain categories of organization, charitable, educational, religious, scientific. That sounds pretty straightforward. And there's a few other categories. It's not that straightforward. It sounds obvious what educational organization is, but then there's boundaries to everything. If there's an organization that's got a, a nonprofit newspaper or magazine publishing propaganda, maybe uh, this has come up for you know, neo-Nazi groups. Like they they will argue that's educational. You know, thankfully, there, there, you know, there have been standards developed by the IRS that hopefully catch that kind of organization. But where do you draw the line between what actually is bona fide educational activity versus what is not? And when you t- try to limit what we define as educational, when does that run into First Amendment issues about regulating uh, free speech and rights of expression? Uh, and that's just one example. Education actually is usually the most straightforward ca- category. What is charitable? Charitable is uh, interpreted very broadly. When the code was, was first enacted, you know, People weren't thinking about environmental organizations as charitable right. necessarily, but that's developed over time. There's a whole body of law of what it, what it means to be environmental and therefore have that be charitable. Uh, what does it mean to be a religious organization? So that's just one example of you know, the kind of threshold question of who qualifies and who does not. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a lot of room for interpretation and the law is constantly developing. Uh, and it's also changing with society, like it changes over time what we think of as valuable, as charitable as organizations that we want to benefit as nonprofits. And so the law is constantly shifting with new interpretations of what that means. That's so again, I think that's challenging because, you know, I, I work with students representing nonprofits and often they'll say, well, I, I, I don't know what the answer is. The answer is somewhere in the middle. And yes, the answer is somewhere in the middle. Uh, and we have to analyze that. And that's, that's also the fun part of that thing. I was going to say, that sounds so fun. You know, I, I think about my analogy is to tort law where in the 40s, you could not recover for emotional harm. And now the laws change so much that you can recover from, you know, change in the 60s. But so this idea of developing, you know, new definitions seems like a really fun aspect of practicing the law and discussing in class. That brings me to another question, which is GoFundMe pages. So, you know, I get as does everyone please for GoFundMe pages all the time. And I tend to give a little money and but it's not tax deductible. And I think here I'm giving to a charity or a charitable cause to help someone with cancer, you know, expenses or what have you. But it really isn't. GoFundMe pages are not a charity, right? You can't. Yeah, that, that's that's right. As long Unless it's an f- actual 501c3 exempt organization, which is, yeah, I think, usually not the case for most GoFundMe pages. And, and just to touch on that, so yeah. that issue right there is that when you make a donation to a 501c3 organization, individual making the donation has the opportunity to deduct what they donate on their own tax return. That's incredibly powerful. So why do we why do we say 51c3 when we refer to nonprofits and why do they care so much about 51c3 status? Mm-hmm. That's a huge driver of how they fundraise. And a nonprofit does not have to be 51c3 tax exempt. But if, usually if someone has the choice between donating to two different organizations that are similar and one has the 51c3 exemption and one does not, they're going to be more likely to donate to the one that gives them a tax benefit. Yeah. Yeah, because there was there was some talk a while back, you know, probably 20 years ago of getting rid of the 503C exemption. It is an impetus to donate. So I just want to stay with this for a second because I don't know the answer. and I want to I want to parse it out. Let's say that, you know, God forbid I had some terrible debilitating illness and I could no longer work and I didn't have the money to support myself. And I created a GoFundMe page for myself. Could I ever turn that into a not for profit or a nonprofit? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, 
one of the principles of tax exemption or 502 tax exemption is there's supposed it's supposed to benefit the public rather than a private individual, even the needy private individual. So there's supposed to be a sufficiently broad public charitable class uh, of people it's benefiting. So you could certainly form a nonprofit to benefit people with that illness. You right. could form a, a nonprofit to benefit people with that illness in this state or even in a town in this state. Mm -hmm. uh, but at some point it gets too narrow where it's overly private and it's no longer a, a public benefiting organization. And so it doesn't qualify for 502 status. So, all right, so defining what does or doesn't qualify for a 503C is one interesting area of practice that you cover. I suspect you have to cover some kind of tax law understanding, right? What, what's what's something else? You know, and let's just say you represent a lot of food companies, right? Not Are they nonprofit, the food companies that you represent? Yeah, so in the, the clinic um, I, I run, we, we represent food businesses that are for-profit, as well as nonprofit organizations that are uh, in the food and agriculture space. So some of them are educational organizations that are teaching people how to farm. Some of them are charitable nonprofits that are focused on issues of food access. Some of them are organizations that are in, you know, interested in environmental issues related to agriculture. So uh, do both. And sometimes they're, and many times actually, they're organizations that are somewhere in the middle and you know, maybe they could go in the direction of a for-profit business. Maybe they could go in the direction of a nonprofit business. And I think that's one of the, the really fascinating, challenging, and constantly evolving areas of the law is what is that border between for-profit and nonprofit, and how can the two work together? Because often it's it's not entirely clear that you know one is in one camp, one is in the other. There's a lot of organizations that are hybrids in various ways, and that's, that's an area of the law that's, again, constantly evolving. That's so cool. So interesting. And I suspect that there are pros and cons to go one way or the other and. All right. So, so you know, you said, you know, before we kind of went on air, so to speak, you talked about open AI and an issue with open AI and nonprofit. What's that all about? Yeah, sure. And, and actually, you know, just it's a good segue because you mentioned pros and cons of nonprofit or for-profit. That's, that's really kind of at the crux of a lot of, I think, what's been going on with open AI for, for those who have been following it. Uh, so open AI uh, owns ChatGPT. They were founded, I think, roughly five years ago as a nonprofit. And I think specifically taken into taking into account all the considerations that we think about of the pros and cons of nonprofit versus for-profit. So it could have been formed as a for-profit business, developing technology and making money off that technology. Uh, the founders of the organization apparently thought a lot about it and for a very long time worked on the appropriate structure. And they decided they wanted to found it as a nonprofit organization, specifically for the reason that they thought AI technology is so important and so potentially dangerous that they don't want it to be controlled by a for-profit, profit-maximizing business that is always going to prioritize how do we make the most money off of this. They wanted it to be controlled by a nonprofit board that was focused on how do we develop this technology in a way that benefits the world and protects against the risks associated with AI. So when you think again about the, the, the pros and cons, from that perspective, a pro of a nonprofit is that uh, it's it's required to serve a public benefiting purpose rather than required to basically maximize profits for the owners of the business. Would be a mm -hmm. simplified way of thinking about a for-profit. Well, what, yeah. what what category did that fall into? Was it education? Like like if it's a not-for-profit, what cat like you know what category would it fall into? Yeah, I believe it's scientific. I, okay. I think that okay. it's organized as a sci scientific research and development. Okay. Which uh -huh. is interesting to kind of revisit now. I, I think I think that's one of the interesting issues of where where it stands right now. Is this what we think of when we think about five one c three scientific organizations? Right, I'm right. not sure it is. So you know, oh, wait, again, and I'm sorry, Jennifer. I have one other question. When I pay twenty four dollars a month for them, is that tax deductible? <laughs> it is not. Okay. <laughs> um, 
So yeah, I mean, for for, for more than, more than one reason. One is it, when you make donations to five one c threes, that can be tax mm -hmm. deductible. When you buy a product or a service from a five one c three, that's not e even if it is from a five one c three. Okay. Okay. Um, and there there are there can be things that are mixed that are part donation, part buying something. In mm -hmm. this case. I don't believe you're actually buying it from the nonprofit. You're buying it from this this new organization. I'll explain that. So, talk about some of the you know the, the positives uh, from that perspective of going the, the nonprofit route. Uh, a negative is that there's a constraint. We talked about the constraint of, of ownership. Nonprofits can't have owners. How do a lot of businesses fund themselves? Get capital. Well, one of the ways is uh, equity investment. So basically, you know, your people are investing money in, in the organization in exchange for ownership. You can't do that as a nonprofit. So that's a major structural con, depending on how you're looking at it, if it's an organization or business that wants to fund itself that way. For many nonprofits, that doesn't matter. They, they, they plan to fund themselves through donations and through grants uh, and maybe generating some revenue. But if it's an organization where equity capital is important, that's maybe a, maybe a drawback. And I think that's exactly what happened. The organization realized that in order to grow they, the, the product and the technology the way they wanted to grow it, they needed equity capital. So what they did is basically set up what's sometimes called a for-profit, nonprofit joint venture, really a partnership between a nonprofit on the one hand, on the other hand, a for-profit business or individual or group of investors that are that are not nonprofits, and then they jointly create a third thing, which is a partnership partnership entity between the, the nonprofit and the for-profit. So, so why why would they do that? The idea would be that they could then harness equity investment to grow the technology and grow grow the business, but at the same time maintain control by the nonprofit. So, right away, I think some people might say that doesn't sound right. Why should a five one c three nonprofit be able to do that if, if the whole concept is that they can't have equity ownership uh, and can't engage in commercial business, why is this allowed? And that's actually something that's developed in nonprofit law over several decades. Originally, that would be per se prohibited. One of the basic doctrines of 502 tax exemption is you can't have uh, improper private benefit. The organization has to exist and operate for a public benefit, not a private one. And if there's a partnership with a for-profit partner, where profits from some revenue-generating activity were shared with that partner, that would per se be a violation of the private benefit doctrine, and you wouldn't qualify for exemption or you could lose exemption. Uh, that changed in the 80s. The IRS started allowing partnerships between for-profit and non-profit uh, called joint ventures in, in a limited way. And basically, the concept was that you could do so as long as the joint venture, the activity, the business activity was consistent with the reason you were tax exempt. So it was something that was consistent with the educational or charitable purpose or scientific purpose as long as the, the profits from it are shared in a fair, equitable, pr proportional way. So you couldn't have the nonprofit invest some money, the partners invest some money, and then all the profits go to the for-profit partners. Uh, and I think most importantly, that the nonprofit had to be maintaining control. Uh, so even if you have partners who get the benefit of their investment, they aren't the ones controlling the operation. So really what, what you have with OpenAI was, that's been done probably most significantly in the hospital space. In the 90s, a lot of hospitals that were nonprofits sought equity investment. They did so by... Uh, moving all their assets into these partnerships, which they co-owned with for-profit investors. So they basically took that mo that model, which is sometimes called a whole hospital joint venture, used it for developing the AI technology so they could harness equity investment from Microsoft, Microsoft and other uh, investors. But uh, a fundamental rule there was that the board of the nonprofit maintained control over the partnership. So that, that that's a story. There's been a lot of commentary over it over the last couple of weeks um, right. Well, because they fired Sam Altman, right? So that's right. So, so that was the nonprofit board making a decision because the nonprofit board had control over this joint venture partnership that actually operated the technology, and that 
you know, was, was not the decision the for-profit investors would have wanted to make. And that, that was the reason there was immediate blowback because questions arose as to, you know, why, why does this very small board have all the, the decision-making power and how this is run and the investors have no decision-making power. So that's one of the reasons. It's oh, a structural that's, so, that's yeah. really interesting. That's yeah. really, because, so here's the question then. If I understand it right, and again, I just, this is, I only gleaned this from the papers, that originally they fired him because he wanted to make sure that there were certain rails and safeguards because of the potential for AI to be destructive. Do you think that the not-for-profit, which is the group that kicked him off the board, right? The not-for-profit, that their incentive is to make this not-for-profit entity more appealable so that it could sell for pro and make more money. Like, I, I don't understand the synergy between the two, I guess, is what I'm Yeah, I, I mean, from what I've heard and read, it, it, it's not entirely clear why, why he was fired, but uh, it appears there were, there were camps in the, I mean, the nonprofit board or, or the people who voted to, to fire him on the nonprofit board were more of a camp of being concerned about the dangers of AI technology, oh, not, right. not developing it too quickly to make profit. And maybe he was in the camp of being less concerned about that and more in a, a for-profit mindset. And mm -hmm. so if if that's the story, and it's hard to really tell, that kind of reinforces that oh, maybe that structure worked in that sense, that even though this was a for-profit model uh, and it was generating a lot of revenue, the, the control by those who were interested in the public purpose kind of won over the interests of whoever is trying to make money off the product. Well, that, I mean, that's, uh, that's, that's one theory about it, I, but it's what happened. He, he got rehired. Why did he get rehired? He got rehired because well, 500 people are just, you know, threatened to leave. Can yeah, you sit exactly. on both? Yeah, but, but that's interesting too, because I think a lot of the employees had equity incentives. So oh, yeah. Yeah, the that, yeah. control, I think you could say maybe this all, maybe the, the, the restrictions failed in this case because yes, the nonprofit board had control, but did they really have control? Because right. if all the employees are interested in maximizing the, the commercial opportunity and therefore they walk out and therefore they have ultimate control, well, then maybe the nonprofit really doesn't have control after all. Right. Can you sit on both the not-profit and the for-profit boards? Can the same person sit on both boards? Yes. Uh, yeah, I, I think what... Ideally, would happen in that case, or the most conservative way would be that it, the, the board of the, the partnership is controlled entirely by. Actually, maybe you're asking a different question, but when we're looking at the, the kind of the third entity, yeah. uh, the the joint venture entity, the the most conservative would be for uh, the board to be controlled entirely by the nonprofit board members or right. people representing the nonprofit. But you can have a situation where there's representatives from the nonprofit side and the for-profit side, but. Generally, there'd be a majority on the uh, from the nonprofit side. Otherwise, it would look like the for-profit controls it. All right, got it. This is so interesting. And, you know, it makes me realize that students really, you know, should take nonprofit law. I mean, we kind of probably have one or two. I don't teach business law, but I suspect there's one or two classes assigned to it in business organizations. But it's actually something that sounds like, you know, you think of it as so bland, but it's really kind of interesting and very analytical. And, you know, to hear that we have to, that there's a, that there's a need and an existence of nonprofits in the technology space, in the environmental space, you know, it's, it's, it's not just kind of what I thought traditionally nonprofits were. So this is super interesting. And I really appreciate that you took the time to chat with me a little bit about it. Well, thank you. Yeah. It's a topic I love talking about. And I, I agree. I think it's, fun topic for students to learn about. I, I love teaching students about it. So thanks and for I will say I've sit it on your classes and they're really interesting and you're great. So thank no, you for taking you. the time.
Thanks, Leslie. So there you have it. Hope you enjoyed this episode. If you have a topic you'd like us to discuss or a professor or attorney with whom you'd like me to speak, send us an email at legaltensor at westacademic.com and send us any suggestions you may have. We love getting feedback. Have a great day. This podcast was created in collaboration with West Academic. Additional episodes can be found on the West Academic Study Aids Collection. Students may already have access through their school subscription and can check with their law school library for access. For a limited time, Legal Tensor listeners can save 15% on titles on the West Academic Store with the promo code TENSOR15 at checkout. <laughs>